These are the tribulations of Paulette. Well, I figured this would happen. Ted got a whiff of my pheromones, and they set off his defibrillator while we were at the hotel. Now he's in the emergency room, being cared for by an old flame of mine named Jim Hughes, whom I haven't seen in years. In the meantime, the nurses identified me as Ted's wife, to Ted's wife, and I'm about to get in big trouble because I just picked up the phone and she's on it. Adding insult to injury, I have a splitting headache from breaking the two-breast cocktail rule at lunch. Now that I think of it, this is a situation right out of the old worst-case scenario handbooks. If Ted's wife were a shark, I could punch her in the nose and she'd retreat. While I'd love to punch Ingrid in the nose, I can't do it over the phone. Still, I have an angry predator on my hands, and she's going to force me to identify myself and tell the truth about how I came to be with Ted in the emergency room. The worst-case scenario says that when something is about to attack you, you have to divert its attention and take it off guard. Ingrid is still yelling, Who is this? into the phone, and I say very quickly, Oh, Ingrid, thank goodness it's you. This is Paulette King. Ted called me on my cell phone when he couldn't reach you, and I dropped what I was doing and came right over to the hospital. The nurse must have thought I was you. Ingrid gets quiet. Poor Ted, I blabber. I had no idea that he had such a serious heart problem. My goodness, that must have been very frightening for you and your family. I'll stay here as long as I can to make sure he's not in any danger. Ted thinks the device malfunctioned again, but... I think they're going to test it before they let him out. Then I cover the mouthpiece with my hand and make garbled sounds like I'm talking to someone. Then I say quite clearly to the imaginary person, why, yes, she's right here on the phone now. Ingrid, I say, stand by for the doctor. And I put Miss Pris on hold. As I turn back toward Ted's room, I see my old friend, Dr. Jim Hughes, exit the room and begin to talk to a couple of the nurses. They seem to agree on something, and then Jim looks up, right at me. He smiles, I smile back. He furrows his brow, looks away, and then he has a double take. I take off the dark sunglasses and take a step forward toward him. Hi, Jim, I say. It's been a long time. Paulette, he says. Wow! Paulette, hey, you look great, he says, and he grabs me and gives me a big hug. I'm sure I reek of booze. My head is pounding. Ingrid is still on hold. Ted is still on his back. And here I am after all these years with not one, but two old boyfriends. Is this guy your, uh, well, what are you doing here, Jim asks. Oh, Ted is an old friend. I say he's not my husband. Uh, He called me when he got to the emergency room, so I came over to see him. How's he doing? He's doing okay. I need to speak to his wife. Oh, she's on the phone right now, I say, and point to the nurse's station. Jim and I dated a lot in the 90s, and it seemed like he was a guy who had it all. He attended the Naval Academy, went on to be a Navy SEAL. He was an avid fisherman, hunter, and adventurer. He flew his own planes and reamed aortas for a living. 
Jim could have written the worst-case scenario books himself. But he was very private. Within the context of those ten dates, I didn't get to learn very much about him. He did say he had been married once, briefly, but that was all. There were no girlfriends to speak of, just his work. Well, my gaydar never went off, so I continued to date him until one day we got a little drunk in an event and ended up at my house. Things were getting hot and heavy, and I thought we just might consummate the relationship until I realized, in an intimate moment, what Jim's problem was. It wasn't that it was small. It was virtually non-existent. Then, lights came on and remedies were discussed. I was extremely kind to him, but after he left that night, he was embarrassed and he never called again. My mother Nancy likes to say that God distributes gifts evenly. Seems that Jim was in theoretical physics class when the stimulus packages were handed out. Now Jim gestures for me to come close, and he puts his arm around me. I think, oh boy, he's going to say why he never called me back. Tell me that new millennium urology has fixed his problem. He leans into my ear and whispers, Paulette, you need to fix your pants. Touche, Jim. My cell phone rings, and it's Dolly. I'm outside, she says. Hurry up. They're trying to make me move the car. I peek into Ted's room and he's asleep. He's hooked up to dozens of blinking machines, which is kind of a sobering sight. There's only one thing left to do here, and that, thankfully, is leave. Dolly is not the best driver. She presses the gas pedal on and off, so we lurch down Beacon Street until we get home. By the time she drops me off, I've answered a thousand questions about my day and confessed to her that I never should have gone on the lunch. I have 10 minutes, literally, before kids are going to begin to arrive home, and I've got to get these pants off. Note to self, no more zippers for a while. An hour later, kids are doing homework, and I'm making dinner. Things are somewhat back to normal. Thinking, why stop now? I pour a glass of white wine to douse the afternoon hangover. Out the kitchen window, I see Dave's car enter the driveway. A few minutes later, he comes into the kitchen and starts to rifle through the mail. How was lunch, he says. Did you have a good time? Uh, it was fine. Rather uneventful. Kind of boring, really. Good, Dave says, as he cracks open a beer and walks out of the kitchen. Two hours later, Dave is asleep in his chair again, and I'm facing yet another worst-case scenario. This is Eric Fontana. I've been to work on time each day, and now my work is done. I climb the stairs to your room. My key unlocks your door. You're lying in your living room with all.
next time. Fake nails, real job. Till then, ta-ta.